Our scripture passage this morning is found in the prophetic book of Isaiah. We'll be reading from chapter 61, verses 10 and 11, and chapter 62, verses 1, 2, and 3. Do you hear the words of the prophet? I delight greatly in the Lord, for my soul rejoices in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of His righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seed to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication, and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow, and you will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Do you remember the first place you ever called home? I'm sure in your mind's eye you're picturing the front drive and what it looked like as you opened the door into the entryway. You could probably picture your favorite room that you would go to relax. Maybe you remember the day you moved out of that home, having to leave because of a parent's new job, or you went away to college, or perhaps a natural disaster such as flood or fire forced you out. Yet each place we have lived holds significant memory in our lives. Each place has become a part of our own stories. Through the four weeks of Advent, Pastor Bob has been sharing with us the stories of the four Gospels and asking the question, where does the Gospel story begin? And to share this story, he has crafted for us word pictures, shared images, and helped us imagine the story of each Gospel as a house during the holidays. We have gone on a Christmas light tour through the books of Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. Wondering and imagining how their accounts of the life of Jesus Christ, and specifically how the beginning of the narrative shines a light to the world. Mark told us, hope is to be found in the manger, only because it is first found on the cross. Bob shared that Matthew's gospel anchors the birth of Jesus in God's promise to Abraham. And that promise is that the redemption story of God and God's people is a story for all people. Luke told us the backstory of Jesus' ministry, the gospel before the gospel. And finally, last week, we visited John's modern home. And John connected the gospel with creation, and that the work of Christ has been from the beginning, and there is no struggle that we take on alone. This morning, I want us to explore our own houses. 
We will explore our own lives and ask, where does the good news of Jesus Christ enter into our lives? Where does our story of good news begin? Understanding the transformation that Jesus brings into our lives requires two things, prayer and examination. The good news of Jesus Christ is set in the transformation of our lives and the community that surrounds us. November of this year, Lauren and I purchased our first house. It's a small three-bedroom rancher in South Richmond with a two-car garage and a nice-sized yard. We're proud to be first-time homeowners, but if you've ever bought a home, you know that it's no walk in the park. You have to make decision after decision about who you will work with, what kind of loan you're going to take out, what you even want the house to look like. The process is decision after decision, many of them minute, but all of them related to this large purchase that will become the longest contract you enter outside of marriage. Just because the house that we bought is now ours does not mean that it's complete. The house that we've moved into was not, as you would say, move-in ready. Paint, floors, doors, plumbing, and masonry work have all become a part of my personal repertoire. I've learned a lot about this house in the six weeks we have been there, and the one thing that troubles me most is I can walk into each room and set my eyes on each flaw that was either there already or a result of my inexperienced craftsmanship. Sounds like you can relate. For instance, the front door trim, there's a rotted piece of wood that was replaced with a new board an inch and a half too short. Or I look at the bathroom wall tiles that I've had to replace and a few bulge where I didn't get far enough back to the base. Or when I step into the bathroom and I can just picture the water damage that was there before the restoration. As I think about the million and one ways that this house is flawed, yet still functioning, it reminds me that God is in the restoration business. We all have experienced pain and hurtful situations. We are all flawed individually in a million ways. And some of these can be dealt with fully. Some flaws can be corrected, but others will leave evidence behind. The transformation of repairs does not always hide what was once there, and the story always remains. For Israel, the story of deep hurt and pain that are central to the community's identity are the exodus and the exile. The exodus is, of course, chronicled in the second book of the Bible, aptly named Exodus, and tells of Moses being called to deliver the Hebrew people out of slavery from under the Egyptian pharaoh. The exile comes about much later in Israel's history. Following the three kings of the United Kingdom, Saul, David, and Solomon, the kingdom then split into two, Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern. As the political and religious leaders and systems became corrupt and they faltered, Israel and Judah found themselves in the late 7th century defeated and plundered by their enemies. Israel by the Assyrians and Judah eventually following to the Babylonian Empire. Through the accounts of the prophets like David and Nehemiah, we know that the upper and middle classes that survived the turmoil and wars were deported and sent to live in exile. 
the point in the story we find ourselves today in Isaiah, the exiles of Judah have been granted the right to return home. Cyrus, the great king of Persia, set in motion a decree in 538 B.C. that repatriated all exiled peoples back to their homelands. This proclamation was an unprecedented political move in this time, and was it a great experiment in how to maintain control over all kinds of different people groups that had been conquered by a single empire. This particular decree allowed for the people to return home and resume their own cultic and religious acts of their culture. For the Jews, this meant returning to their returned homes in Judah and Jerusalem and gave them the opportunity to rebuild and resumed worship in the temple. The passage of Scripture in Isaiah 61 and 62 that we are in today is part of a larger section section spanning from chapter 56 to the end of the book in chapter 66. The people have returned to Judah. The temple has been rebuilt, but the faithful people of God are experiencing two problems. The local leadership is corrupt, and the worship happening at the temple is impure. And in these 11 chapters, the writer makes two claims. The first is that the people of God that have returned from exile are now to be defined by their faithfulness to God. Whereas before the exile, the people of Israel were understood under the Abrahamic faith and covenant to be a community under those who lived under the law and had been circumcised. The community now is being redefined as only those who are faithful to the way of God. And the second claim is that the faithful can respond to the corruption in worship and leadership in two ways, to examine the community life and to pray. Zooming in close now to this passage we read, chapter 61, verses 10 through 62, 3, we find the writer expressing themselves in first person, self-reflecting on what it looks like to be faithful to God in their current circumstances. Listen to verses 10 and 11 again. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation, arrayed for me a robe of His righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels, for as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. The author is reflecting on two major ideas about God, righteousness and salvation. Righteousness is the act of enjoying being acceptable or in good standing. A student's in good standing when they return home with good grades for all of their courses. An employee is in good standing with their supervisor when they have made it to work on time diligently and been working hard on their task. Another image we have of what, it, what righteousness looks like is through the balancing of the scales. This winter, Disney released its sequel to the box office hit, Frozen. Frozen 2. You may have already seen it, and one of the opening scenes provides a great image of what it looks like to be enjoying rightness when the scales are balanced. 
Elsa, queen of Arendelle, is singing and surveying her kingdom from the balcony of her castle. And a camera shot is flying in and out of different village people who are enjoying life at its fullest because things are right and acceptable in the kingdom. While the images show Arendelle and balance and peace, the lyrics of Elsa's song are full of anxiety and worry that she is going to mess up and put the lives of those in the kingdom at risk, singing about a voice calling out that only she can hear. The lyrics are full of anxiety, and she's unsure if she's going to be able to lead these people when everything is right. It is here that salvation comes in and relates to righteousness. As if on cue, the rightness of Arendelle falls out of balance and Elsa and her people find themselves in need of rescuing. Unlike in the movie, though, we are not our own saviors. We are not the deliverer of salvation. We are simply the recipient of it from God. Salvation is both the physical and spiritual rescue we receive from God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's the experience of God's righteousness and salvation the author is rejoicing about in this text. For though the land around them is corrupt and worship in the temple isn't as what it should be, this person is delighting in the Lord, and I love the image that is written about how God acts in verse 11. Like spring coming forward, God will cause righteousness and praise to burst forth in all places and among all peoples. And spring is bursting forth in this individual in their self-reflection as they continue in chapter 62. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her vindication shines out like the dawn. Her salvation like a blazing torch, the nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow and you will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. For the sake of God's kingdom and for the sake of the community of the faithful, this individual will not remain quiet. They will instead let the glory of God's kingdom shine through them like all the suns blazing down on the earth. And in this theme of light, the sun and the light of the torch illuminate God's divine power and serves as a witness to all that God fulfills promises from generation to generation. The story of the one is also a chapter in the community story. The transformation they see through their examination of their own lives, they also begin to see broadly in the community of those who are faithful to God. Through prayers of thanksgiving and reflection upon the self and the surrounding community, the writer is allowing their eyes to be opened and their life to be seasoned with the work of God around them. Even when it feels as if God is absent in the people around them through prayer and examination, transformation is happening, and transformation is being realized. So where in our lives, in our houses, do we need to experience transformation? When Lauren and I had decided on a home that might fit our needs and our budget, we hired a home inspector. Now, their job is to advise you on what things in the house you should consider for replacement or repair, 
as you begin to negotiate with the seller and make an offer. As both a new homeowner and as a pastor, our inspector made a comment to us that has stuck with me. He said, how much time do people spend in their attic or crawl spaces? By that I heard, how often do we examine the parts that we don't want other people to see? How frequently do we ignore and pretend that those areas of our house aren't even there? Yet these places be can become the areas with the most extensive damage. The places we spend the least amount of time ultimately become places we have to put considerable amount of resources into. What are those places in our own lives? What are the wounds or failures of our past that we hide instead of sitting in God's presence with them and allowing God to transform and restore us in ways that only God can. You see, there's good news for what this means for our lives. God is in the restoration business. All repairs, everything broken can be fixed and restored. Some dealt with fully like they were never there, but other repairs, their mark remains. Repairs make it stronger and more durable but the story will always remain, much like the story of the exodus and the exile remain with the Jews. And yes, there is a price. There's always a price. But this one is different than you would expect from an offer from a contractor. If you try and do it yourself, you'll pay more than you want with little and unsatisfying results. But if you give your needs to God, whether it's a full restoration simple maintenance, the replacing of a battery, God the Father and Jesus the Son have paid it all. Christ knocks on our door with a simple contract. We must acknowledge that there is work that needs to be done and that we will agree to do it together in relationship. We will acknowledge what is chirping in our own lives and replace what needs to be replaced. We'll fix what needs to be fixed, and we'll acknowledge what we need to acknowledge. The price is paid, but we must do the hard work alongside the Lord, and the transformation begins through prayer and examination. When the work is done, we have much to share and rejoice about, singing the praises of the one who did the work, Jesus Christ. I recently got to observe one of our very own, singing these praises of what God is doing and allowing the light of her house, her light, to shine before others. On what was a particularly hectic day for myself, Lauren and I had closed on the house, but we hadn't moved in yet. We woke up early, left our apartment, and drove over to the house expecting the delivery of our new stainless steel appliances. We were hopeful that they would arrive and they would look good with the freshly painted walls and the newly laid ceramic floors, but unfortunately, things didn't go as planned. The delivery men showed up only to leave us with a microwave and say, the range that you've ordered, we actually didn't have, and they didn't share that information with us until they had arrived. Disappointed and frustrated, I left to come to the church office. For my lunch break, I went to the store where we had ordered our appliances from, 
and I nibbled on the few answers that customer service could provide me. Unsatisfied and unsatiated, I elected to pull into the Chick-fil-A to grab some food. As I pulled in, I decided I wasn't going to sit in the drive-thru, but instead try and slow down and go in and sit at a table. Coming through the door, my eye caught a bright green sweater and a fur beret. There, enjoying her lunch alone, was our very own Edith Creech. I approached her table, got her attention, and I said, hello, Miss Edith. Looking up, oh, Pastor Aaron, her face lighting up. She invited me to join her, and I agreed. Returning to the table with my yellow table marker and sweet tea after ordering, I found Edith speaking to another patron. In a manner that only grandmothers can, she introduced me as if I was one of her own. This is Pastor Aaron from my church. We go to Huguenot Road Baptist. He works with the young people, and you should join us there for worship sometime. A few minutes later, my food arrived, and the Chick-fil-A employee asked Edith a question as if she was a regular patron. And the next thing I know, she's into her spiel again. This is Pastor Aaron. He works with our young people at Huguenot Road Baptist, where I go. You should join us sometime. To my count, this happened three times. Not only did Edith invite others into our community from the perspective that this place has something to offer, but we also swapped stories of what our experiences of our first home were like. And we shared stories about unplanned visits to the dentist and how through it all, the ups and downs, the frustrations of the day that had presented themselves we saw God faithfully providing for our needs and our restoration through chicken sandwiches and conversation at the table. The prophet's words are, I will not be quiet until her vindication shines out like the dawn. Edith Creech is sharing that light that declares the Lord's righteousness and salvation because of what God has done in her life as she has reflected and prayed about her experiences in her life. And the community that she has, the outlet that she has to share where that light comes from, is here at Huguenot Road Baptist Church. May our light shine, and may our stories of good news never end, so that those who come after us will be transformed by the power and love of God. Amen.